Thanks for tuning in to the Replatform podcast sponsored by Amplius and Clavio. And you listen to myself, James Gerd, and my po- uh, co-host, can you even say that this morning, Paul Rogers. How are you, sir? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm looking forward to this episode because it's an area that's not my core expertise and I definitely am looking forward to learning more about it. So um, firstly, a big welcome to, to regular listeners for tuning back in. Thank you as always. And if you're a new listener, thanks for, for giving us a chance. We hope you enjoy the episode. Do subscribe. You'll get episode alerts. We drop a new episode every week and they're packed full of uh, e-commerce technology re-platform and CX advice. Now, our topic today is an important one. It's understanding how Markson's 3D cloud helps e-commerce retailers with AR and, and 3D product configuration. So this is an area that I've, I know Paul's um, worked more closely in this than me, but I've seen a lot of clients increase in interest in how they use AR to engage and drive um, uh, revenue and how they turn product interest into conversions through, through um, smarter um, product configurators. So really looking forward to learning more on this episode. So what we're going to cover is what is Markson's 3D cloud proposition yeah, how much work is it for a retailer to get started with these tools? Um, and how does integration work for, um, for like, some of the e-commerce platforms out there? So let's introduce today's guest. Uh, Beck, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. Um, so you're founder and CEO at Markson. So can you give um, our, our listeners a flavor? What, what is Markson? Where do you sit in the market and what, what do you do? So Markson is a content management system for 3D products or or digital twins of of real physical products. Uh, We focus today principally in the home vertical. So that would be things like kitchen, bath, decking, furniture, office, closets, and and so forth. Um, Our job is to uh, help, whether it's a homeowner or a designer or a pro or a store associate, take a product that's made up of multiple components. Um, people often call them complex product categories. So I think things like office chairs or, uh, you know, a, a desk suite in an office or a, a kitchen. So you have a catalog of disparate products that you need to bring together um, in one environment so you can purchase them. And, um, uh, what's new and novel about all this is rather than doing this on like a professional design tool or something that only a designer or a pro could use that they'd have to download on their desktop, we're bringing this all to the browser. So uh, we anyone from a, a homeowner to a pro can do this without uh, any heavy software and can do it from anywhere at, at any time. And I like to think of us as kind of like the uh, Expedia in a way, in the sense that at one point in time, you had to have a professional, you know, book a ticket for you. And they had a professional set of tools to do that. And then Expedia and all the other travel sites went online and all of a sudden we could do it ourselves. And so we're, we're doing that same kind of thing for these complex home projects. That makes sense. Um, so I'll ask the first question. So how did Markson initially start and how is the overall kind of proposition or capability changed since then? Um, was it always kind of enterprise focused or has that changed over time? So um, my brother Barry's our CTO and, and we've always been in like B2B SaaS companies. We had a previous company that was a cloud-based platform for for marketing that we, we sold in the mid 2000s. And so we've always kind of been um, marketing technology, B2B kind of SaaS focused. And um, the original thesis for the company, so this is, uh, you know, early 2011, um, our background had always, my background always kind of been in, in retail and um, CRM and customer marketing. And my brother's background is math, computer science. And, and uh, he came to me and said, I think 3D is going to be a really interesting space. 
well beyond the home vertical. And I said, well, I know a lot about retail. So let's begin to put together a proposition of how retailers will use 3D to engage consumers. And so our original um, original products were, were, were pretty simple. Um, things like we wrote the very first augmented reality app for the App Store in November of 2011. So we're, uh, we call ourselves 3D OG. We've been here a while. Um, but the, um, um, the, and the value proposition has continued to mature to a full suite of applications. So augmented reality, product configurators, module configurators, uh, room planners, virtual reality. And so now we have a, a whole suite of products that sort of circle around the 3D cloud um, to kind of sort of engage the consumer at multiple points in the, in the journey from, hey, I'm just thinking about a project, maybe I need a visualizer to I'm ready to plan and price, I need a full, you know, uh, kitchen planner. I've got um, a question, actually, I'm working with a few premium brands, and I think there seems to be a, a, an unfair perception that product configuration is, is not pretty, right? It's just very functional, that's it, it doesn't look great. How, I'd love to hear, like, what do you think drives it from a customer experience point of view? Like, what are the benefits that you see retailers ch- achieving for their customers by putting 3D and AR as part of their strategy? Uh, I, I think that assumption is actually fair. I mean, historically, you know, these configurator tools to be performant online or a browser, right, had to be pretty simple. You didn't, you know, most, you know, people didn't have like a big, you know, fire-breathing dragon graphics card, you know, that they could use and and have these these 3D visualization experiences. And so what's really happened is, you know, browsers now support 3D in a pretty meaningful way, a pretty high quality and so I think that the demand to make these configurator tools, you know, sort of look realistic in real time, you know, if I'm building, you know, whether it's a, an office chair or a tennis shoe or a handbag, if I'm configuring something, I'd sure like it to look, you know, photo real or near photo real as I'm configuring it. That just, I think that demand has always been there. I think the, the laggard has always been just uh, browser-based platform. You could do this on mobile for quite some time, really the last eight to 10 years. But browsers are only a couple of years in where, you know, the product looks high quality enough for a brand to really get behind it. And I guess um, moving on slightly. So we've had quite a few clients where we've looked at kind of doing the 3D builder piece with AR. Um, mm-hmm. And we've done a few projects as well so via some other third parties. Um and what I typically found is that projects like this are pushed quite far down the roadmap just because there's a perception that, you know, they're they're massive projects and, you know, all of the associated aspects of it around kind of building out the renders and everything else, like there's a perception that it's a big project. Um, what does the end-to-end project actually look like typically for your customers? Does it need to be a big project or do you think, um, yeah, I guess if it's, say, it's sort of 100 products initially or is do you think that it could actually be uh, more kind of streamlined for internal teams? Yeah, our so our average uh, uh, delivery period is 10 weeks for a, a new project. So these are not like three-year-long SAP projects. Um, but I think a lot of that, um, we've done that somewhat purposefully to, you know, to try to, we call it the, the first unit of success, get out quickly, build confidence and, and, you know, that opens up, you know, further opportunities. So I think there's a combination of things. One, there are this suite of applications from something as simple as like web AR to something like a visualizer to a configurator to a planner to VR. They all have 
their own sort of dimensions in terms of, okay, how much content do I need to really pull that off? Maybe I only need a couple hundred products that are featured in AR. That might be fine. But in a planning experience, I probably need 3,000 products to create a good consumer experience. And so you sort of look at each of these applications as like, okay, how many products do I need? Okay, there's a cost to that. Um, um, you know, what's the complexity of the application to set up? How many integrations are there? Or maybe no integrations are necessary. Uh, where something on the further end, like a planner, you might need you might need SSO and you might need a PIM integration and availability and regionality and pricing and all that. Um, and so we try to help our clients kind of pick the one that they can, you know, sort of digest at the moment and sort of incrementally build. The second part of, and the sort of less understood known of any of these projects is creating 3D content uh, at a really high quality at scale that's extensible is not an easy thing to do. And so when you, behind the scenes, we have a platform called 3D Workflow. So it's what source material do I need? What are the business rules? What kind of assemblies are going to be necessary? What are the mount points between multiple products? What materials are going to be laid on the products? Are there multiple materials per, per product? Or are there, you know, in some cases, we have clients that have variants that run in the billions. If you take, you know, you multiply a geometry times a material times a wood, you know, a wood grain versus a metal and a plastic, like it, the numbers can get very high. And then you go, well, a lot of these products are going to share materials. How do I do this in a data-driven way where it's not all sort of manual, you know, creating sort of monolithic objects? And so the data infrastructure you need to onboard the content, organize the content, reuse assets, QA, publish, and then publishing, you start to think about, well, an a, a web AR product, uh, a 3D model has to be a much smaller asset than something that you could use in like a product configurator. And so now you have all this traffic copying that has to happen of like, okay, which which size, what fidelity can go to which application and you have to make choices in, in the system. And then you got to tie it all back into analytics and reporting. So our job is, uh, and you've got multiple 3D file formats in there too as well. So you have to do all these conversions. And so our job is to sort of like just take all that complexity away from the client and say, give us your references, we'll do everything, and then you'll see your application and you can see how it works. And so all that onboarding and organization and uh, orchestration is, um, is you know, 98% of the investment we've made in, in trying to make this easy for clients. That makes sense. And um, and what is a typical, so let's say it's a builder piece. And as you say, obviously, you need to factor in all of the kind of components and stock management and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but what does a typical integration look like? Do you have kind of pre-built connectors to any platforms? Or is it a case of actually, you know, most implementations are bespoke API? Um, yeah. 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 So our philosophy is uh, everything we do in our platform is modular. So if you you have a lot of configuration choices that you can make and we try to keep it sort of loosely coupled so you can we can weave our modules in between kind of if they have a customer journey already built out and they want one component here and one component here we're, we're able to fit in and sort of like a um you know um you know like a subdomain that we can get into the middle of their journey where we're not trying to take over their whole journey that's that's one and then around integrations, um, typically CRM, SSO, uh, PIM, uh, CART, uh, 
you know, in-store checkout. Those are the typical integrations. And we've got a, a fra- standard framework for each of those and, a, and an API, or, but most of the time we work around our clients' o- open API. Whatever they have available, we'll work our system around it to take advantage of that. Asking a big client to sort of rewrite APIs is a, usually a recipe for disaster. And would you, um, would you usually do that work yourself? or would you We do. Okay. We do. We're kind of, you know, the company today, we're about 130 people. Um, we're kind of past that. We're in a, you know, growth phase. And we've, we've sort of held on to direct client relationships up till this point, because I mean, when you add, you know, we do get, uh, we have some done some work for like with Accenture and Bain and others, but more as like advisory with, you know, but not typically like a integrations partner. Although we, we you know, it's, we're, getting to the point where that would be possible. And so we'll start start doing that. Well, I just wanted to come back. You talked about your onboarding workflow and, and setting up automations to, to limit the, the complexity for clients, which makes perfect sense. I just wanted to put it into a bit more layman's terms for any e-commerce team that's never gone through this process before and is a bit nervous about maybe doing like a, a 3D product configurator or an AR. I know I'm working with a luxury brand at the moment. They're nervous about putting products into AR. What do they... Do they need to do anything to their source imagery if it's in really good, high-quality format? They've got all of the different angle shots. Do they need to do anything at all to make those images AR model ready, or is that are you saying literally you just you just suck up that um, those assets and then you create the the renders yourself? Yeah, the only exception to that. So most of the time, we're using a uh, you know product imagery on a URL to create the assets and. Part, part of what you learn is that the more you do, the better you get, and you can start to sort of anticipate. We have a massive library of materials now. So every brown leather and, you know, stainless steel and nickel finish you could possibly, we have all of that. And that's where really the art is and a lot of the quality and the visuals. And so we don't, if we get a new client that has a nickel finish, we don't build a new nickel finish. We just, you know, take a nickel finish that we have and repurpose it. And so... So that's, so when you go, so that's where a lot of the, the quality, so we've really sort of created a premium uh, yeah. library there. There are some instances like, a, let's say you have like a, uh, you know, a cross weave fabric on an upholstered item that's completely a custom fabric. That's no way we'd have that in the library. In some cases, we do ask our clients to send us like high res photography, you know, large enough that we can tile the material and, and lay over the product. But um, but I'd say that's uh, that's not typically the case. Typically, we can work right off the, the product page. Okay, go on. You you talked about trying to obviously keep this this simple um, for people and not having to do loads of complex API work. Are you are you do you have or are you planning to build out any like you know um, what you know one click install apps for platforms like Shopify, Big Commerce, where people can just almost take a vanilla version that will do you know, 80% of the stuff out of the box, or is it just not feasible to do that because of the, the complexity of the modeling? Um, I don't I don't think it's feasible. If it were something as simple as like color variance, like you had an object that was like a fixed monolithic object that just changed from red to blue to green, I think that's entire, I'm, I'm sure stuff out there exists today. Um, it, but the uh, we like to play in data. It's very it's a much more sort of defensible position. That the, the business rules are actually the thing that uh, I'll give you a, a funny example. Like if you go into a typical uh, DIY and you're going to buy a kitchen, 
that they have got a catalog that's you know two and a half inches thick of every product that you can buy. And then you have a designer sitting next to you and all of the business rules are in the head of that designer. That the only place you know what can go together and how yeah. far the hob needs to be above the stove all sits in that person's head. And so what we do is when we onboard the 3D models, we uh, imbue them with behavioral data so they know how to interact with one another. Like, oh, I can connect to you. Or, oh, here's a conflict. Or, oh, I need to be so far away from you. Oh, or I can't be. And so that's the stuff that I don't, this kind of one-click setup would be hard to do where you have, you know, business rules, relationships that yeah. have to be sort of added. And, and yep. right now there's no automated way to do that. Yeah, that makes sense, especially uh, I can imagine kitchen configuration um, and implications of, of picking one item and the impact on the size of the others. Uh, how about, so say if you take the, um, the AR, say a client of mine in the um, uh, like home furnishing space really wants to do AR so that people, so it's, it's for their small business professionals like designers, but also for their, their home audience. So they could be on their phone and be looking at one of their stalls and see what it looks like in their lounge. Is there, you know, it, that's a simpler, um, obviously, play because it's not loads of configuration. It's just taking the corporate image and putting it into yeah. general. The, is that feasible in the future? Do you think to to have apps for that, or again, do you th is there still a, a data challenge? I think for sure, for sure. So, web AR is really the simplest thing you can do today, um, but there are some limitations. And so, web AR is. Um, Apple and Google control those file formats. That's a USDZ and a GLTF, they call them. Think of them as like a PDF. Like once you finish typing in a PDF and you save it, right? It's like, it's everybody can open and read a PDF, but it's a compiled file format where you can't do anything with it once it's in your scene or in the when you're looking at an AR. And so, um, if you've got a pretty simple product category without a whole lot, with not a lot of, you know, permutations, WebAR is a really good solution. Um, but if you have a lot of, a long tail of permutations, then you really need a product configurator that then once you finish the configuration, you can publish uh, uh, an AR file. And so you're starting to see these sort of connectivity points between, oh, I've got a product configurator that outputs an AR asset when I'm done configuring. Um, so things like that are so simple at web AR for sure, for sure. You know, uh, highly configurable web AR is, is still require quite a bit of, I mean, there's no shortcut to that. What is Ampliance? In a word, it's freedom. The freedom to build a digital experience as limitless as your vision. Create, preview, schedule, and manage all your content in one easy place. Find out more at Ampliance.com. Ampliance. Experience freedom. Right. And then I guess so I was having a look around your website over the weekend and um, you reference your kind of bundles proposition, which appears to be kind of a series of like accelerators, I guess, for different types mm. of retailers and some of the products you offer. Um, can you just talk us through how these work and how they differ from kind of an end to end custom implementation? Um, I think. You know, I talked a little bit before about this continuum of sort of simple 3D to, you know, more complex, more integrated, more 3D model 3D, right? So so what we've done is try to, what, what we've sort of found is that each of these applications have a different 
purpose and a different outcome. And so let's, so think of it like a customer journey where it's like, okay, I need, you know, at the very simple end, a customer can look at some how-to stuff and submit a lead to a, um, you know, to like a virtual design team, right? That is probably going to be, that would take you five minutes and people could do it quickly, but the lead value is not going to be very high, right? Because it's so easy for somebody to do the very, you know, the investment is so low. Then you might go to something like a, um, uh, uh, estimator, right? Where you put in some information about your project, it may take you 15 minutes. And so it's a bit more of an investment. The leads might be lower, but the lead quality is going to go higher. Then you go, okay, well, now I want to visualize where somebody can start picking styles and, and, and that sort of thing. Well, that might be a 30-minute investment. Leads are lower, but lead quality is higher. And so what we've done is, and then you go all the way to like a planner where somebody might spend hours and hours and the lead volume may be lower, or, but the lead quality is going to be the highest you can get, right? They're way down the funnel. And so what the bundles are really about are trying to create that sort of here's where you would start like higher lead volume, lower lead quality, but good engagement and sort of work your way into higher and higher uh, lead quality across all of these tools. Um, and so it's, it's more of a solution selling kind of framework to, to give people a, okay, here's your entry level, here's your more complex. And again, sort of starting them with the lowest investment possible. And how does it work from a maintenance point of view? So if somebody's building a uh, configurator and they've sort of the data model in the platform, is up adding new products from the ranges, is it just an automated process if the data model doesn't change? So new variants, you know, new new collections, or is there, do they have to do, is there a manual process each time they have to upload and update catalogs? No, it's all, it's all automated. And you hit on a key point, which is let's say you're a manufacturer of, you know, uh, office furniture and you have a new material that can go on the back of a chair. Right. The last thing you want to do is go through and touch every single chair. Right. So in our infrastructure, you load up that, you know, that material one time, you say, who's it applied to? And it's all automated and everything gets applied in real time. And so you hit the nail on the head. It's like once you build, you know, you know, like a Macy's has like 15,000 3D products in our catalog that we built over the last three years, like, you know, May, you know, which stores these go to, which applications they go to, what new products are coming online, which ones are getting discontinued, which ones are getting featured, how you merchandise in the app. Like that's the workload that you want to make sure you've got a great data model or you could end up doing a lot of bespoke work. And so say, for example, if, I, if I'm a um, furniture retailer and I've got all of my sofas in, I've got all the materials and all the mm. configuration options, and all I do is, add five new sofas. So there's no new materials, no new configuration, just five new products. Is that automatically in the data feed? So they would just appear within the configurator. Um, it would. So that's all part of the workflow. Cool. Yeah. Yep. I mean, you, ha- you can you can have like a staging area where you do QA and then you can publish, yep. you know, and then we have like a, you know, like a CDN environment where it's separate from the, you know, uh, development and production, of, you know, so the production environments, you know, not touching the testing environment. And so you can do all this sort of testing and QA and validation and integration and publish to the, the CDN. Um, so one of the uh, biggest or like one of the best builders we've talked about in the podcast and my personal favorite is Tilco, which has been like market leading for years. Um, what are some of the kind of like, I guess, what are some of the best builders that have been built via Markson or some of the best ones that you've seen or worked on? 
Uh, well, uh, Kingfisher's been a client of ours for quite some time. Uh, B&Q, uh, we do their, um, uh, their kitchen and bath and storage planner. And um, it's been interesting. They're, that what they were trying to do, which was ambitious, is they went through, uh, you know, sort of rationalization of their, of their range to say, okay, let's, we've got too many ranges. Let's simplify and make sure they're interoperable and, and scale easy, right? And I think they took quite a bit of that in-house as well. Then what they said secondarily is I want to be able to work with my, I want my designers and my pros and my consumers all to be using the same tool set. So I have all this collaboration and sharing across. So one of the very cool things that I can do in like one of our tools is if I, let's say, let's say you've come to me uh, or let's say I've gone online and I've found the tool and I build five kitchens, right? And then I reach a point where like, okay, this is a, you know, several thousand dollar purchase. I would like to have some advice and counsel before I make my decision. I can then contact you and give you access to and share my projects. And then you can pick up on my projects and start sort of optimizing them based on your design experience. And when you're done, you can share them back almost like a Slack chat, like this asynchronous sort of coordination. So we don't have to be on a Zoom call together. We can share the project back and forth and edit and comment. And so that, I think that, that, that the, the real advancements in this space are not necessarily about kind of how complex the configurator is or can it, you know, lock these. It's more that it's opening it up to more of a, a, a collaborative environment, like, or, you know, one of the, I'll tell you, one of the little tricks in this space is you want consumers to, to touch these tools. And the reason is if they get engaged, the likelihood that they're going to purchase goes way up because they, they create this sense of ownership. And so if you start on a configuration for me, send it to me, say, what do you think? Maybe you want to pick out a wall or a floor color. And maybe I do something simple, like just book a wall and a floor color. Although it's not a big complex design, I'm now part of the project. And so that sort of like letting multiple people engage and touch is super valuable. Plus, I mean, I could spend, we had one lady spend 50 hours building 10 different projects in our tool. Clearly, she's not ready to <laughs> buy yet, but, you know, all this data and all this information, and she was able to engage, you know, with a brand without having to consume the time of, you know, the store associates, which has really never been done before. You know, it was like there was no tool to use. Previously, she would have been, you know, working in PowerPoint and, you know, Photoshop and ripping things out of magazines and MacGyvering together some sort of vision. Now she can do it all on her own. That makes sense. And is your would you say your typical implementation is more complex? Would you say that's kind of a differentiator of Markson rather than because there's obviously a lot of like smaller companies now doing some of this stuff um, that's maybe a little bit more templated um, and more kind of front end oriented. Yeah, our uh, we're definitely you know our niche is um, when you're going to put your whole catalog online, like when you've committed to most of our. It's funny. It used to be when people called, you know, two years ago or late earlier would be, Hey, I'm thinking about a XYZ 3d app. That's not how they, they buy today, especially the big enterprise guys. Now they call and they say, um, I need a 3d content management system because I plan to launch, you know, a series of applications across brands, channels, and so forth. It's not actually too different than like a CRM implementation. 
it's like you wouldn't buy nine different CRM apps, right? You'd buy one and then sort of, you know, uh, distribute it out across, you know, customers and, and divisions. And so it's a very similar kind of, um, some of our very best clients are, are, are new opportunities or where they've done something bespoke internally or with a partner. And then they said, okay, now let's scale. Right. And then, that, and then, that, um, and that's where we can really help. That makes sense. Um, and I guess one of the, when we first started talking about you coming on the podcast, one of the suggested topics was around kind of web free and the metaverse. Um, so I guess I wanted to ask a question, which is basically, I mean, obviously um, 3D models are, are a big part of this world, but how does Markson work with yeah web free and like, where do you kind of add value on that side of thing? So it's interesting. So the, um, you know, it's the the metaverse is such a uh, sort of broad thing to you know try to understand. Um, I actually I have a view on on what it really is or what a what it real will be. Um, I think the I think the metaverse as a like calling a place where like a retailer and brand has a virtual mall, right, or a virtual car lot, where I go online and. I experience that brand in a much more immersive way and maybe I buy something. Like to me, that's that's not the metaverse. That's just kind of a a branding, it's you know, sort of a 3D website, right? In terms of experience. I think what's going to be really interesting is I've been calling them portals. It's like I think the real metaverse, in order to have really interesting, you know, sort of compelling content. It's going to be made up. It's going to, there'll be tools that allow individual contributors, kind of like yourselves and what you guys do with your with your podcasts. Is you'll be able to create sort of interesting content, and there'll be a lot of them. And then the real metaverse will be the piping between those, sort of almost like a uh, uh, a hyperlink between these worlds. And that's what will happen: is you'll have all these individual contributors, and they'll start to kind of come together in common interest areas. And then link. So in 3D or in my headset, I can navigate between these multiple experiences. And so I think that that's what, when we talk about the metaverse years from now, I think that's what it'll end up being. It's more of this sort of, you know, sort of how to navigate between sort of bespoke experiences. Um, I think today, um, if I was a retailer and I'm thinking about the metaverse, it's it's probably pretty practical applications. Like if you could call AR and planning tools, you know, kind of metaverse experiences, especially if there's some sort of like collaboration and sharing involved. Um, but we're going to, I mean, I, I was there when they, before augmented reality was called augmented reality, we called it holograms. And I was there when I think I bought the very first uh, Oculus headset in 2012 or whatever it was. So I mean, that was seven years between when the CES hype of Oculus you know, and uh, and to where it was a practical sort of, you know, commercializable application. And I lived through that whole sort of hype cycle. I think metaverse were, you know, we got a good five to seven years before. I think we see real practical scalable applications. I wish that weren't the case, but that tends to be kind of the pattern. Yeah, I'm hoping they found a better name for it in seven years time. <laughs> yeah. And it's not so directly linked to Mark Zuckerberg's uh, <laughs> company. <laughs> now, you know, it's so funny, too, is that, you know, 
for, you know, when you're early to market, you think, you know, AR and VR, right? It's like early and it's hypey and people are excited. And, you know, you're sort of like trying, no, no, it's practical. It can work. And, you know, you know, that's part of my job is getting them into like, hey, this is here now and you can get real value out of it. And so we just, we just, just smoothed our way into that spot coming out of COVID where all of a sudden everything we were doing virtually, like made a ton of sense. Like yeah. people were like, yes, I have to have a, a self-service virtual tool. And so we just got into like, okay, it's here and now. And then the metaverse came out and sort of moved it, moved it back into the hype. Where I was like, yeah. you know, yes, we'll they, it. And we've touched on it during this podcast about the, you were saying that, that one of the big changes has been the browser capabilities to support the sort of technology. It's not just required. It's not just mobile apps, et cetera. I'd love to know what's your perspective on where the browsers are currently at and, and any major browser changes that are, are really helping you drive this forward or that you're that are coming down the line that are going to make you know make this even better for retailers that was a, a huge huge inflection point in our business like two and a half years ago so um you know unity and unreal didn't really have they were really built you know came out of gaming right and so um i'll give you just a really simple example so if i were in a uh, a rendering engine in like unity and I was playing a game and I was a character that ran across a screen, like you would want to re-render, you know, every moment of that experience. So the shadows and the lighting would all look real. Right. But that's a tremendous amount of overhead in a browser, like on a, de a dedicated device or a gaming machine. That's fine. Um, and you want that kind of experience, but in a, you know, a living room planner, if I move a couch from one side of the room to the other, do I really need to like recalculate the lighting? All, can I just turn that off and turn it back on when it reaches its destination? Mm -hmm. And from a user perspective, you don't like that's perfectly fine. And so the overhead in these gaming engines was way too high to create a really good browser experience. It was sort of high quality and performance. And so Babylon, which is an open source uh, rendering uh engine that came out of some employees from, from Microsoft really was a, a, a game changer because now all of a sudden we could, you know, we could run one of these experiences with my laptop, you know, kept, you know, buzzing and catching on fire because I'm trying to, you know, render too much. And so we still have to do a lot around, you know, the size of each individual asset, how many assets you can have in a scene, you know, giving users the ability to sort of adjust quality levels, performance and quality. So there's still a lot of that optimization happening, but the the fact that you can create a WebGL asset in a browser that's a live runtime 3D model and you can't tell that it's not a photo or close, like 90%, you can't tell that it's, you know, that it's, it looks like a photo, like that's amazing. And so in the next three to four years, you'll have a real WebGL asset that you won't be able to distinguish from a photograph on a browser, which means there's no reason to ever have a photograph on a product page again. Like shampoo bottles, shoes, every product category will turn into a 3D model on a product page that you can fully you know, articulate. And the reason is once you have a live 3D model on a product page, you can do a lot more with it, right? I can, I, somebody can take it, I can create assets out of it, I can share it, I can view it in AR. And so that's what's really going to happen over the next five years is that we'll just all get used. To, I mean, we'll be shocked if we click on a product page and it's a photo and I can't do anything with it. Like I can't turn it around or look at it. You'll be irritated, right? It'll be like dial up internet. 
if I can't manipulate the asset. Makes sense. Yeah, I think that's um, it's an interesting one. I think uh, a lot of people probably would have expected that to at least be a bit further along by now. Um, but yeah, interesting. Um, well, not every product category makes sense, right? I mean, there's um, uh, furniture was kind of a layup, right? That was again, like the most obvious use case and it's a proxy for measuring. You put a, like an AR product in a room. Oh, you know, why do you need to see a shampoo bottle in 3D? Right, probably not. But if yeah. you can increase engagement, you can get a little bit of lift across a, a lot of tra- a lot of sessions. And so, I, shoes, kind of handbags, makes more sense. But it's like the, each category is sort of sort of moving its way slowly into okay, this is worth the investment. I think uh, like some of the more mainstream technologies um enabling it would probably make quite a big difference as well like at one point Shopify stores started rolling out uh 3d modeling and ar just because shopify had uh started allowing for it but yeah i think that's the uh the big one that's going to drive well when people start scanning their own assets and all becomes you know community driven yeah i mean that definitely will make a big difference i think whatever can can basically reduce the the uh the entry cost for doing 360 degree imagery will have a big impact on a lot of categories, not just on the obvious ones where people want to really look and feel the product. So even in um, in consumer packaged goods, one of the big issues is being able to like, you can't pick up the product and look at the nutrition label when most of us are lazy and don't read down. So loads of like online grocers or brands wanting to work with online grocers look at what it costed. And actually the cost of doing all the different photographs to then turn it into a 360 degree model. Yeah, that, and then you can... Yeah, then you can open it up and if somebody creates their own metaverse, you know, experience, they can take your assets, make them part of the experience and you've got, you know, product placements and there's a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Great. And then last question for me. So what else do you have on the roadmap beyond kind of improvements to the core kind of products and offering? So one of our, uh, one of our core missions has always been to, bridge the gap between when you were inspired to buy something to go where you have to design and configure it and and then ultimately purchase and like if if you've gone into like design a kitchen and you got let's say you you built your floor plan and you're like okay i'm ready to design and you click on the catalog and it's like okay I need a 36 by 24 cabinet. Oh wait, here's a 30 by 24. Like the process of picking and choosing and sort of like Legoing together a kitchen is like, like that's a lot of work. And you've got to have a great imagination and some skin if you've never done it before. It's just it's too much work to ever see this really get to consumers. And so what we've been working on is we take inspirational photos that are that we build out of the platform. And rather than going into the catalog, you can drag and drop the product pieces out of the inspirational photo into the 3D scene. So it's like, if you can't draw, you can trace. And so that's been a big improvement in helping people self-serve. And then you can go right to checkout. The next evolution of that is what we call magic rooms, which you've just released this, which is now that I have your floor plan and I have the inspirational photo you want, I can click on that floor plan and auto-generate the room in the scene. So I can seconds i can build the whole kitchen based on a set of rules and design parameters and you know where the windows and doors are and the heating and cooling then once i build the room automatic but it takes the 
the design intent from the photo and keeps it, but just makes it fit your room. And then I can start clicking through every possible permutation that can go in that room. So it's like, um, it's a terrible analog, but I've been using Tinder for room design. I can just start swiping and just rebuilding the kitchen and rebuilding it and rebuilding it and rebuilding it and rebuilding it. You know, I want it laid out here. I want it laid out here. I want to change something. And it just keeps swiping through. It's like 3D photo swiping. And so um, that's a pretty big uh, unlock for the space. And it'll go to all the other categories. So all of a sudden, you know, where we're headed is, is you take your phone, you scan your room. I have a floor plan. I pick a picture. I tap the picture and I get a room built. And then I just keep tapping through pictures until I find the one that I like that fits my space. So that that's where we're headed is this sort of fully automated inspirational design experience. So um, and when you say that's where we're headed, is, what's the time? Is is that your the vision this year, or is this is it is it going to be a phase approach? Because that sounds like quite a meaty evolution. We've, we've got five plus years invested in this, you know, probably X amount of million dollars. Um, so we just launched uh, our, our beta version. So we're in testing now and we'll start in kitchens and then we'll move to the other categories as well. So, yeah, kitchens is probably like the, the Uber. I mean, the most difficult one for an average homeowner to do. And so if we can make it work there, we can make it work in the other spaces. Yeah. So by this time next year, we'll. We had to have hope to have this rolled out to most of our clients and and in multiple categories. Thanks. I look for I look forward to uh, hearing about when the first one's live, so we can have a good look around. Um, yep. that, that's all the key question I asked. I really enjoyed this this conversation. Thank you. I've learned I learned some new stuff, which is always really useful. Uh, I, I guess a last question would be: if anyone listening is interested in learning more or if they've got a question where they think they think well that didn't quite make sense i, I want some some more information how do they reach out who do they reach out to sure they can reach out to me it's just beck b-e-c-k at marksent m-a-r-x-e-n-t dot com and and um and we're more than that we do a lot of like um you know free uh you know solution consulting uh helping people um you know try to find the right solution and really understand the space we also do some 3D 101 kind of courses for people who are new to the space as well. So quite a few resources uh, uh, where we can uh, hopefully be of service. Okay. Excellent. Um, and thanks to everyone who listened in as always. Do keep an ear open for your next episode. They land every uh, Tuesday. And let us know if there's any other topics you'd like us to cover. If you haven't subscribed, uh, we'd love you to. And you get alerts for every episode that comes out. So thanks, everybody. Take care. Thank you, James. For more information on this topic, head over to replatform.fm for our audio podcasts. To discuss a project, or if you'd like to chat about any of the topics covered in this episode in more detail, please reach out to myself, James Gerd, or my co-host, Paul Rogers, via LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and keep your ears peeled for the next episode.